0: far above the 10.3% it won during the last federal election in 2021. Nikki Haley is the only opponent left facing off against Donald Trump in the GOP primary after Florida Governor Ron DeSantis dropped out of the race over the weekend. Haley says she's resisting calls to drop out as well, a day before the nation's first GOP presidential primary in New Hampshire. Sagar Magani filed this report.
1: Happy pre-election day.
0: At a VFW hall in Franklin, Haley says the pressure is coming from the nation's political and media elite.
2: Say that I should drop out for the good of the country to support Donald Trump.
0: After the crowd booed and said no, Haley mentioned Trump's win in the Iowa caucuses and the low voter turnout.
2: Donald Trump won 56,000 votes. Out of three million in Iowa, he got one and a half percent of the vote in Iowa. America doesn't do coronations. We believe in choices. We believe in democracy and we believe in freedom.
0: Her remarks came after another fellow South Carolina Republican decided to endorse Trump. Congresswoman Nancy Mace, days after Senator Tim Scott backed him. Sagar Magani at the White House. The Biden administration is making a renewed push for abortion rights at this election year, with Vice President Kamala Harris leading the fight today in Wisconsin on the anniversary of the signing of the now defunct Roe v. Wade decision. Jackie Quinn reports.
1: This is the 51st anniversary of Roe versus Wade, the Supreme Court decision that legalized abortion in all 50 states, overturned in 2022. Vice President Kamala Harris, a year after that, warned. Extremist Republicans in Congress have proposed to ban abortion nationwide.
2: Nationwide. But I have news for them.
1: We're not having that. She and President Biden are holding a series of events this week, introducing new measures to strengthen access to emergency abortion care. Abortion rights are a key issue in the 2024 election, with Republican frontrunner Donald Trump proclaiming...
0: I'm proud to be the most pro-life president in American history. I'm Jackie Quinn. Nearly 30,000 professors, librarians, coaches and other workers at California State University, the largest public university system in the United States, walked off the job today in a week-long strike to demand higher wages. The stoppage across Cal State's 23 campuses comes two weeks after CSU officials ended contract negotiations with a unilateral offer starting with a 5% pay raise this year effective January 31st, far below the 12% hike that the union is seeking. The California Faculty Association represents roughly 29,000 workers. Another 1,100 CSU plumbers, electricians, and other skilled trade workers represented by the Teamsters Local 2010 were set to join the strike, but reached an agreement with the university late Friday. I'm Scott Baba for Pacifica Radio.
1: Good day and welcome to Letters and Politics. I'm Mitch Jezerich. Today we're going to be in conversation about the country of Yemen, its history, specifically who are the Houthis, a political and military group that emerged in Yemen in the 1990s. A group that President Joe Biden last week reclassified as a terrorist organization after the group attacked a number of ships, including U.S. warships. The Houthis claim it was aimed at ships that were associated with Israel's attack on Gaza. The United States has responded with its own military strikes against the Houthis, sparking fears of a wider conflict in the region. For this conversation, I'm joined by Shireen Al-Aldimi, who is a non-resident fellow at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft and Assistant Professor of Language and Literacy at Michigan State University's College of Education. Shireen Al-Aldimi, it is my good pleasure to welcome you to this program.
2: Thank you, Mitch. It's good to be here.
1: I appreciate you taking time to have this chat. We do want to dive into history. We'll also get to some of the more current things to get your perspective about that as well. Let me begin in the past, and I won't linger too long on ancient history, but just spending a little bit of time studying about Yemen, you quickly see that Yemen is an important place in history. It's important when it comes to Arab history. It's important when it comes to Arab identity and and language, and it's also an important place when it comes to Islamic history.
2: Yeah, it is. All of these things are true. Um, Yemen is, um, you know, we have a very long history, a long civilization. The capital, Sana'a, is one of the oldest continuously inhabited cities in the world. It's where the majority of, of, in fact, the majority, most Arabs trace their roots back to Yemen and so Yemenis are known as you know so to speak the original Arabs. If you're into coffee Yemenis were the first to brew coffee that our Ethiopian brother and sisters um, discovered and so we have a long rich history and even during the times of the Roman Empire it was a key exporter of um, all of the spices and frankincense and myrrh and so it was known at a time by the Greeks and Romans as Arabia Felix for being this prosperous land and so we have a long long history and um, that you know Yemenis are very proud of but then it's kind of overshadowed by colonialism and the consequences of colonialism as we know are not just felt during that time but they're generational and so when we get into modern Yemeni history things are a little bit more complicated.
1: Yeah, it's it's a place of empires. You mentioned the, the Romans and, and Greeks. Uh, the Ottoman Empire was there for a long time. They were were replaced by by the British Empire. What's the importance of, of of that history of colonialism?
2: So the Ottoman Empire ruled in what's commonly known as northern Yemen. Um and you know they were on and off essentially from the fifteen hundreds until the collapse of the Ottoman Empire in nineteen eighteen. And they were met with fierce resistance throughout that history. Yemenis are not people who, you know, I don't think anybody likes to be subjugated. Um, And Yemenis have certainly fought very, very fiercely for their independence from the Ottoman Empire. And uh, so they left in 1918 and then they were replaced by um, a monarchy, a, a Yemeni. Uh, family of monarchists, the Matuakalite Kingdom, which lasted until the early 60s when there was a coup against a successful coup. They had attempted previous coups, uh, but this coup was successful in the 1960s to overthrow in, the monarchy in favor of a republic. And so that's the history of northern Yemen. And in the south, we have the British Empire, first the East India Company, and then the British um, themselves uh, were ruling the south of Yemen. Uh, from its center, Aden, where where I was born um, for 128 years. And so it's a, it's a long history of uh, partitioning the country essentially with the Ottomans in the north and the British in the south. Um, but South Yemen also gained its inter- independence through resistance in 1967, and uh, was then ruled by the Middle East's first and to date only Marxist Leninist country and so it was a communist socialist country for a duration of time um, from the 60s up until 1990 now toward 1989 the Soviet Union was collapsing like I said there aren't socialist countries in the region um, that could lend support to Yemen and so the leaders in the south began to negotiate unity with the northern Yemenis and the country unified under President Ali Abdullah Saleh, who had already been ruling North Yemen from 1978 onwards. And so the idea of a greater Yemen always existed historically, and Yemenis living under the Ottomans, under monarchy, and living under the British Empire in the south, always had the goal toward unity, which we finally saw happen in 1990, although it wasn't really, uh, many would say, successful unity.
1: How important is this dynamic of Northern and, and Southern Yemen?
2: It's important because, um, like I said, it wasn't a very successful unity in the sense that within four years, the South declared secession from the North and was met with violent bombardment essentially by North Yemen. And so there are all of these tensions brewing in the South of people wanting to have their independent Southern state, which you see up until this day. And fast forward to 2015. I mean, of course, a lot happened before then, and we can get into that. But in 2015, when the coalition that began bombing Yemen to reinstate the internationally recognized president to power led by Saudi Arabia and the UAE and the United States, they found support among southern Yemenis or at least their leadership who felt like, well, if you could help us, you know, against the Houthis, against northern Yemenis, then we can maybe have our own independent state in the south. And so that dynamic is still important. And right now we see like, and this has been the case since July of 2015, essentially, The historic North Yemen is controlled by who are known as the Houthis, Ansarullah. And the historic South Yemen is controlled by this coalition, um, the Saudi-led coalition. They have their puppets in place, of course. But, you know, we're back to that historic divide, essentially not perfectly, but more or less that historic divide between North and South. And it's also important to note that the north is a smaller geographical region, but it, it um, it's home to 80% of Yemenis, whereas the south is larger and has 20% of Yemenis.
1: It's often described as a civil war occurring in Yemen. Is that an appropriate way to look at it?
2: It's not, only because civil wars, um, you know, there's agency in civil wars and may, there might be foreign interference, but there's agency among the parties. Whereas in the south, we've seen, or in Yemen, we've seen that They're the Houthis in the north who are fighting against the Saudi-led coalition. And whether they're the separatists or they're the party of the Islamist party, the Islah, or the members of the ex-presidents group, the GPC, they've all joined forces with the coalition forces. And without Saudi intervention, without Saudi backing and UAE backing, they would not form, they would not have the ability to form a resistance against the Houthis. And so... The Yemenis are not they're they're fighting one another, but one group is being funded and backed and aided every way, shape or form by the Saudis and the United States and the UAE. And many of those people live in those countries and have called to war against their countries from those countries, from Saudi Arabia and from the UAE. Um, And so because of this extensive backing, because every bomb that was dropped on Yemen was a US made bomb, you know, dropped on civilians in Yemen by the saudis who received training and logistical support and targeting assistance and mid-air refueling by the united states i think because of this overt and extensive interference by these countries all of whom are foreign to yemen we can't really in good faith call this a civil war
1: the united states has also had a very direct role with it with its own bombing campaign in, in yemen during the so-called war on terrorism
2: right and so um starting with the Bush administration and the Obama administration, they at the time they had an ally in Yemen, President Saleh, their dictator and long term ally, and he gave them free reign to do as they pleased in Yemen in the name of fighting terrorism. He enriched himself with, um, you know, funds from the US essentially to in the name of fighting terrorism. Uh, and he was a very, you know, savvy political maneuver maneuverer, And so, um, part of the reason that the houthi's came to power were because they were speaking out against this very relationship between our president saleh and his relationship with the saudis his relationship with with the united states and uh deteriorating the sovereignty of yemen by allowing these presidents these you know foreign uh entities to come and drop bombs on yemenis as they see please uh, as they please as they see fit as you know um and we know that many, many civilians, if not most of the targets have been civilians, but because the U.S. decided that a terrorist may have been amongst them, they were dropping these bombs on our people. And so this was there was a lot of resentment growing among the people in Yemen, but the Houthis were one of the groups who were speaking out against
1: that. Ali Abdullah Saleh, you would describe him as a dictator?
2: Oh, absolutely. I mean, he would won, win elections every five years by 99.9% of the vote. And so that's classic dictatorship. He would suppress his opponents, um, lots of political repression, lots of repression against intellectuals, anyone who would pose a threat, whether it was the southerners in the south who were seeking secession or the Houthis in the north who were calling out his uh, for calling him out for his corruption. He responded violently and through war campaigns. Um, but, you know, the U.S. loves its Middle Eastern dictators, and so he was propped up by the United States and by the Saudis for as long as he ruled, which is, ended up being 33
1: years. So a firm ally of, of to the United States, and Yemen's considered an ally at this during this period of time.
2: Yes, until 2015 when he switched sides, um, and so there's a lot of switching sides in Yemeni history. Yemenis are very... Um, uh, let's say, pragmatic folks. And so um, former enemies turn allies, turn enemies. Again, this is a common story in Yemen. Um, but he, he was deposed essentially in, during the Arab Spring protests in 2011. He initially resisted and didn't give up power, but then he did after an assassination attempt. And um, he was able to negotiate a deal with that was overseen by the Gulf countries, the GCC. Um, and was able to maintain his power in Yemen, step down, not face any prosecution, and he remained in charge of most of the Yemeni army. And so when the Houthis took over in 2014, um, they were only able to take over Sana'a because most likely he just had the army stand down and not pose any threat to them, and then became their political ally when they were, when the Saudis began bombing Yemen in 2015. So long-term enemy of the Houthis, they, he had waged six wars against them between 2004 and 2010, only to turn around and support them in their fight against the U.S.-Saudi-led bombing, only to turn against them again in late 2017, and within 20, 48 hours, he was he was dead.
1: So that's a bit complicated, yeah. Um, and 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 so is this? How is it? Just it's described frequently that the Houthis are largely in control of Yemen today, though maybe not entirely. But I'll I'll let you take that on. Um, is it through this process of him switching sides and then eventually his assassination that the Houthis really do gain? I, I guess the upper hand in Yemen, for lack of a better term.
2: Yeah, so when um, the Houthis marched down from their province in Sada and took over in September of 2014, they were still interested in a political process. They were saying that they weren't, I mean, they used forest, of course. um, Many see that as a coup against the the president, the interim president at the time. They did place him under house arrest, um, but they were still willing and they were close to signing a UN negotiated peace agreement that would have formed a coalition government in Yemen. And Saudi Arabia was, of course, threatened by that outcome because they wanted the good old days where they had a puppet in Yemen's government, and they didn't want this coalition government that was going to include the Houthis, who are staunch uh, enemies of the of the Saudis. And so they interfered militarily, uh, supposedly on behalf of the interim president of Yemen, but he was also caught by surprise and um, was happy to support them, of course, but he was caught by surprise. And... Um, the Houthis ended up forming this alliance with President Saleh, who mobilized much of the Yemeni army in their in their support, uh, in support of the movement. Uh, and they were seen together as, you know, fighting against this invasion, this the Saudi-led UAE part, you know, backed UAE U.S. Uh, backed campaign. Um, they grew in power. They entrenched themselves in the in the capital. They formed a unity government with Saleh and members of his party. And they began governing the north where again the majority of the population resides while fighting the saudis you know on the ground or really their mercenaries on the ground um when saleh switched sides in late 2017 i think this was due to the uae essentially speaking you know opening up a back channel with saleh and saying we're going to support you you could be the president again whatnot and so he asked people to rise up against the Houthis but it was a massive miscalculation because by then they were already um in his own stronghold and he it wasn't it was no longer a Saleh stronghold in Sanaa it was now a Houthi stronghold in that in the capital and so since his um you know uh killing uh, some members of his party remained in In this coalition government with the Houthis, others have joined forces with the coalition and began, you know, posing a different front um, to the Houthis. But they still remained in control of most of the most populous area in Yemen. Um, Nothing has really changed very much on the ground since July of 2015. The southern part of the country, historic south, and some areas in the north are controlled by the coalition government. But that basically means, you know, Saudi influence, UAE occupied areas, uh and then southern separatists who have different goals from Re- Yemenis who are on their side um but don't want to secede from the north. They're still trying to retake the north and so there've been clashes within those groups themselves. And you have like al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula and some ISIS groups in the south. So the south is completely, you know, fragmented among all of these different political parties whereas the north is really only controlled by Nasadullah.
1: this is letters on politics we are in conversation with shireen al Adimi, non-resident fellow at the quincy institute for responsible statecraft and assistant professor of language and literacy at michigan state university's college of education she joins us for a conversation about the history of yemen and and who are the houthis so let me ask that who, who are the Houthis? How, how do you describe to people who the Houthis are? I think for a lot of people, especially considering most recent events with the attacks against ships in the Red Sea and the United States response and military attacks against Yemen, um, how, how do you describe to people who the Houthis are?
2: Well, they're often described as Iran-backed Houthi rebels. And I think um, those are just euphemisms for enemy, right? Because here in the in the U.S., in the West, we're conditioned to think about Iran as a great enemy. And so it's easy for people to understand, oh, yeah, these are the bad guys. In Yemen, of course, they're not seen that way. Uh, their relationship with Iran has been exaggerated. Um, they're an autonomous group. They are Yemenis who initially began. Uh, the movement began by this the Houthi family in northern Yemen in Sada province, which uh, borders Saudi Arabia. And they were a family of preachers and politicians they formed a political party. They were, you know, they had membership in parliament for a while, um, and they were speaking out very uh, consistently and vocally. And again, that's a dangerous to- thing to do under a dictatorship. Uh, but they were speaking out against Saudi Abdullah Abdullah's relationship with the West and with Saudi Arabia, and against Saudi religious influence in Yemen, because Yemen has a long history of uh, Zaydi Shia traditions and uh, Sunni shafii traditions um and yet we saw the in- influence of Salafi Wahhabi Islam from Saudi Arabia in the 90s and the 80s and the 90s and the early 2000s uh that was deteriorating the theological fabric in Yemen and so they were speaking out against that and, is this being uh, brought in
1: is this being brought in from Saudi Arabia Wahhabi? Yes yeah, it's
2: been brought in from Saudi Arabia Saudi Arabia was exporting this version of Islam to pe- you know to the masses essentially to people in Pakistan and Bangladesh and Afghanistan and Yemen um and Maybe there wasn't as much resistance to this in other places, but in Yemen, like I said, we have a very long history of coexisting as Zaydis and Shafis, Sunnis and Shias, um, and so there was this was a threat to Yemeni identity and Yemeni society, especially when this ideology was, um, you know, many don't see as being compatible with these with these other traditions at all. It's a very extreme version of uh, of Islam that you see taken up by people like who belong to Al-Qaeda or ISIS or the Taliban and whatnot. And Yemenis were very resistant to that. Um, but the Houthis themselves, they belong to the sect of Zaidi Islam, like I said, but they're not a minority by any means. Forty percent of the Yemeni population follows that sect of Islam. The president Saleh himself followed that sect of Islam. He was a secular man, but he was a member of the Zaidi um, community. And so this isn't an issue of a sectarian divide among Yemenis. Uh, it's not an issue of like the small minority that is not representing the, you know, the interests of the larger population, but they were most vocal against U.S. intervention in Yemen, U.S. influence in Yemen and Saudi influence in Yemen. And Saleh saw that as a threat. And so he responded by enlisting Saudi support to um To battle them militarily. He said, look, they're at your border. They're a threat to you as much as they are to me. They call you an enemy. They think of me as an enemy. You really should help me out here. And they did. He tried doing the same with the U.S. at the time by creating this uh, link between them and Iran, saying that he, and this is all in WikiLeaks if people want to go down the rabbit hole, but I think it's worthwhile, um, you know, uh, saying that. They are funded by Iran, that their weapons that they were using against the Yemeni government were you know, transferred by Iran. And the Americans took this seriously because, like I said, Iran, USA long-term enemies. And so um, they were willing to support him if that were true, but the investigations showed that they were actually getting their weapons from the Yemeni market, the Yemeni black market. And so they weren't, you know, agents of Iran. Um, they've gone closer to Iran as the war dragged on. Uh, but they're certainly autonomous. They're indigenous to Yemen. They have, they're a product of the local conditions there in Yemen, um, and the response to them, military military response to them, only made them stronger over time.
1: The Zaydi sect of Islam. This is, I, I suppose, under the umbrella of 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 uh, the the Shiite track of the religion.
2: It is, um, but it's also theologically closer to Sunni Islam. Um, because the 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 schism with the when we say Shia Islam now most Shia Muslims follow the sect that's practiced in like Iraq and Lebanon and and uh, Iran which is the Twelver um, sect the Ja'fari school of thought um, the Zaydi split very early on. And so they didn't have, they don't follow the 12 imams the way the majority of the Shias do. They follow five imams, the last of whom, his name was Zaid. And so hence zaydi Islam. Uh, but theologically, they're closer to Sunnis. While, And I think that's why they were allowed to, and, and maybe not that's why, but that's one of the reasons they were able to coexist with their Sunni neighbors with no issues for 1,500 years. Um, but they are... Um, they don't think of themselves necessarily as Sunni or Shia. They think of themselves as Zaydi. And the Zaydi sect mm-hmm. of Islam only really exists in Yemen.
1: So a little bit different than I think is commonly portrayed in the media today that the rel- that there's this relig- strong religious connection between Yemen and Iran.
2: Yeah, there isn't. I mean, there's a geopolitical interest. There's a, a relation. I mean, they found themselves being bombed and uh, starved by uh, most of their neighbors. And they found an ally in Iran. Um And Iran does support them with various, you know, maybe technological ways, maybe some weapons, but not to the same extent that the Saudis were receiving, you know, or the other side, the other Yemenis were receiving support from the Saudi-led coalition in the U.S. To say they're Iran-backed, I think, just gives us the notion that they're controlled by Iran and they're certainly not controlled. And many people have been saying this, just hearing those analyses are just preposterous because it betrays a true ignorance of the situation in Yemen. Uh, and at the very least, just a nefarious attempt to um, dismiss them as just, you know, proxies of Iran.
1: Could the Houthis be considered a religious fundamental fundamentalist group?
2: Um, they're not calling for a theology, a theological state. They are still operating within the Republic of Yemen. They are cannot be compared to uh, extremist groups like the Taliban or ISIS or al-Qaeda by any means. And their concerns have always been nationalists. So... Um, this was a call for sovereignty this was a their 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 protest at the very beginning and their fight now is one of national sovereignty they have no interest in you know in repression like you know or control in that sense or imposing a religious doctrine although that may come with them becoming the de facto rulers we'll see um but you know they also, like I said, 40% of Yemeni society is already Zaydi. And so they're not trying to convert people to Zaidi Islam. They're just trying to stave off foreign intervention. Uh, but I think it remains to be seen what kind of government they will have. I hope it's one that's democratic. I hope it's that Yemenis can actually, you know, decide their own future because this was what they've been attempted to do all along. Yemen is a republic. Um, we're not monarchy like our neighbors are we're not absolute monarchies
1: tell me the significance of that yemen yemen is a republic
2: there is a long um so tip of the Arabian peninsula is surrounded by gulfs the gulf of aden in the south the red sea in the west oman to our east which is a sultanate uh, Saudi Arabia to the north, which is a an absolute monarchy, and then all of the countries within that Gulf, the Arabian Gulf Peninsula, Qatar, Bahrain, Kuwait, UAE, and like I said, Oman and Saudi Arabia, all of them are absolute monarchies. Yemen is the only one in that entire region that is not, and um, when there was a monarchy in Yemen, in northern Yemen, in the... Between 1918 and the early 60s, Yemenis fought long and hard to expel them, to expel that system of monarchy. And they actually found, the monarchy found support from Saudi Arabia at the time in order to maintain its power. So for eight years, the Saudis and the British supported the North Yemeni Zaydi monarchy um, to try to remain in power because... If you're a king, you want a king at your borders. You don't want a democracy at your borders trying to maybe uh, influence your people in any way, shape or form. And so the motivations of Saudi Arabia have always been to try to maintain if we're not going to get a monarchy in Yemen, we've tried that in the 60s. Well, at least we can get a puppet in government who uh, will serve our interests as long as well as his and that's the panic that we saw in 2015 when they realized that that wasn't going to be the case anymore with the formation of a government that would have included the Houthis. Um, And so I think it's important to realize that there's a spirit for democracy. And if the Houthis end up becoming dictators, I bet you anything that the Yemeni population is going to rise up once again and, um, you know, call for uh, an independent, you know, republic democratic state because that is the promise that has yet to be fulfilled as in a,
1: Yemen. Could it be described as the republic for now has been put on hold in the sense of how it operates?
2: Um, I would say so. I mean, there's not been any, we can't have elections at this time when there's an act of war. Um, there were going to be elections in 2014, that, or 20, 2012, 2013, 2014, that they kept you know, moving those elections um, president Hadi was in power as an interim president for a while, but he was only appointed for two years. Within those two years, he was supposed to call for elections, and he kept, you know, postponing that. Asked for another extension, resigned, was, you know, basically wasting everybody's time. Um, and meanwhile, there was a plot to essentially federalize Yemen into these several federal uh, federal groups, and the Houthis resisted that because it was just going to fracture. It's just going to be another attempt by foreign powers to divide and conquer. Um, and so I, I would say that, you know, it's yet to be seen, but the hope is for um the people of Yemen to decide what's best for them. And hopefully that happens in a democratic way.
1: Last week, US President Joe Biden redesignated the Houthis as a terrorist organization early on in his term as president. He undid that designation of the Houthis being a terrorist organization. How how do you see that dynamic in the United States with these terrorist designations about the Houthis?
2: Biden and his administration criticized Trump for using this as a political tool back in 2021. So one of the last acts as president, uh, in, in one of his last acts as president, he... Trump designated the Houthis as uh, terrorists, largely in response to the UAE saying, hey, look at these guys. They've been bombing us as though Yemenis are not supposed to, you know, as though Yemenis have no right to self-defense, that we were just supposed to lay down and take it while a coalition of 16 countries was bombing us. Um, And so he designated them as terrorists. And very quickly, the Biden administration um, reversed that. It was actually the quickest reversal of an FTO in in the U.S., Um, because he saw that as a political tool. And uh, Blinken at the time said that, oh, we've listened, quote unquote, we've listened to the United Nations warnings and other humanitarian groups. And we know that this is going to affect the Yemeni population adversely. Um, We don't see them as terrorists and we're going to delist them. So now to now reinstate them uh, is essentially doing what Trump did, which is using it as a political tool, except that, I I mean, Trump did it. And, you know, and he was leaving office. He just did it to placate the UAE. but Biden is doing it to get them to stop the attacks in the Red Sea when he knows that the only thing that's going to stop the attacks in the Red Sea is calling for a ceasefire in Gaza, actually having a ceasefire in Gaza, lifting the blockade on Gaza, which is what the Ansarullah have said that is, uh, is behind the motivation for these attacks. Um, and during the short ceasefire, there were no attacks in the Red Sea because, you know, that they said they weren't going to attack when there is a ceasefire. So... Um, I think it just represents another, you know, political game that this Biden administration is playing. And he knows that this is going to starve Yemenis because what financial institution is going to want to operate in an area that's controlled by, quote unquote, terrorists? Um, and so those of us sending money back home in order to make sure that people are alive, how are we going to be able to send this money back home? How remittances are a large part of the Yemeni economy, unfortunately, because of the um because of the um, the poverty that Yemenis have experienced as a result of the war over the last several years so you know how our aid organization supports to operate in those areas um, it, he knows what the consequences are not to the Houthis but to the Yemeni population the Houthis don't really have a lot of funds outside for him to sanction this is not going to affect them it's going to affect the average Yemeni person just like the war and the blockade over the last nine years has affected the average Yemeni person at the end
1: there has been a famine Oh, absolutely.
2: Um, I mean, they've called it famine-like conditions, but we know a child was dying of starvation, a child under the age of five was dying of starvation every 75 seconds for many years in Yemen. Uh, Nobody sat down and calculated all of these costs of war. It feels like they just stopped counting at some point, but, you know, the most conservative estimate is that 377,000 people were killed in this war, either by starvation or bombing. Um, We know that the figures are much larger. You know, anybody who... um, needed dialysis and couldn't get get access to that because of the blockade 50 percent of the population had no access to hospitals or healthcare services because most of our hospitals were bombed and then you know getting medical aid and supplies into the country was impossible because of the blockade um cholera was running rampant in yemen the worst case the worst outbreak in modern history happened in yemen because there's no fuel in the country to operate the water pumps People were drinking contaminated water, couldn't rehydrate with water because there was no way to gain access to clean water. And they were dying of preventable diseases like cholera and diphtheria and whatnot. Uh, All of the people who died, all of the children who died of a fever because there was no Tylenol on the shelves, for example, those don't get counted as casualties of war, but they absolutely have been casualties of war, let alone the people who literally starved to death. And we were seeing these images of people starving to death. Because there was no food allowed to come into the country unless it was authorized by the Saudi-led coalition.
1: There have been charges of genocide uh, about concerning what's happening in Yemen. Do, do, the legal term of genocide is a deliberate attempt to um, eliminate in part or in whole an entire people. Do, do you see that as having, having had happened or even still happening in Yemen?
2: Absolutely. And I think the parallel I'm going to draw here is that the case against Israel in um, the ICJ, you know, parallels the case against um, or, you know, there's no case against them. But these um, the statements that we hear the Israelis make about Palestinians are they parallel the the case that uh, this the statements that the Saudis were making against Yemenis. So, you know, Israel says that they're not blockading uh, Palestinians they are blockading Hamas. Saudi Arabia said for a number of years, they're not blockading Yemenis, they're blockading the Houthis. Okay, well, Yemenis were dying, Houthis are not. Um, They were saying that the Houthis were using civilians as shields, as human shields, just like we hear Israel say about Palestinians who are being killed, civilians, and they say that they were just human shields being used by Hamas. Um, they were saying that they're not targeting, you know, anything deliberately. Uh, meanwhile, you know, hospitals and schools and school buses and any any moving vehicle, essentially, and homes and mosques and all of these areas, uh, historic, even our historic heritage sites, they were all deliberately targeted by the Saudi-led coalition. So if it's not genocide, then what is it? Um, they declared war upon the entire population of Yemen, those in those areas that um didn't support them that didn't accept foreign intervention and they worked really hard and you know we know from u.n reports for example that their targeting was widespread and systematic and yet the u.s continued to support them not just with weapons but with targeting assistance and logistics and spare parts and all of the ways that we mentioned earlier
1: shereen al adimi is our guest al Aladimi is a non-resident fellow at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft and assistant professor of language and literacy at Michigan State University's College of Education. She joins us for a conversation about the history of Yemen and who are the Houthis. Shireen Al-Adhimi, what what interest? What is the interest that Saudi Arabia has in Yemen?
2: I've been saying this for a number of years, and people have said, "Well, it's actually not that important." But we see the importance now, which is Bab al-Mandab Strait, first and foremost. Bab Mandab mandeb Strait is where international shipping goes through. Anything going to Asia from Europe, anything going to Europe from Asia has to go through Bab Mandab mandeb Strait. And whoever controls Yemen controls Bab Mandab mandeb Strait. And so the battles there have been most fierce over the last several years as well. And so, yes, there are some oil reserves and gas reserves and whatnot. But the main interest here is Yemen's geopolitical location and the you know, the ability of whoever's governing Yemen to potentially disrupt international shipping in that strait. And the Houthis have never posed a a threat to international shipping. They don't even pose a threat to international shipping now. They pose a threat to shipping um, to Israel's economy, essentially, because they've targeted all Israel-linked and Israel-bound ships after the U.S. and U.K. started bombing Yemen they said that they've expanded that to also US and UK linked ships in that area but i think we see now that the geopolitical location um and the ability for yemen's rulers to disrupt that is what got saudi arabia and the ua in the uae and the us involved in yemen to begin with um They underplayed that for a number of years, but that's why Yemen has always been the target of those countries. And they've maintained good relationships with the dictators there in order to ensure that, you know, that Saudi oil going through these ports is not going to be disrupted. And that, you know, you don't want instability at your border either when you're Saudi Arabia. And so that was the other reason they wanted to maintain control and have a thumb over whoever is going to be leading Yemen.
1: This strait, it's a part of the Red Sea?
2: It's a part of the Red Sea. It's just at the entrance of the Red Sea. Yemen is at that corner of between the Gulf of Aden in the Indian Ocean and the Red Sea. And uh, it controls its very tight passageway. It's actually the name translates to Gate of Tears because historically so many people died crossing those straits. It's a very, very narrow strait. Um, and so, you know, they've they've controlled it. And there has been some... So in the 60s, for example... The communist, country, the communist uh, government in South Yemen, in a show of solidarity solidarity with um, the Egyptians in their war against Israel, um, they closed Bab el Mandeb tra- Strait for a while. So people know, the U.S. knows, the Saudis know that this Strait is very important, and uh, whoever is in charge of Yemen controls that Strait, and so it better be somebody who is a strong ally of Saudi Arabia and the U.A.E. and and the United States
1: and it's important to understand the red sea itself and the importance that the red sea holds this is a long body of water that's connected to other body of waters that can actually serve as a shortcut from the atlantic ocean to the indian ocean and without being able to go through this 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 these bodies of water you would actually have to sail all the way south around the continent of africa so it's it's a vitally important body of water. I think it's multiple bodies of water, right? Also includes the Mediterranean Sea and I, I'm a little geographically challenged, but
2: Yes, absolutely. And so, you know, you don't want to add if you're a shipping company, you don't want to add nine to fourteen days to your journey uh by going through the tip of Africa, right? Um and that comes with extra fuel, extra costs, um and, you know, this is a shortcut, like you said. And so it's vitally important to shipping to um to international shipping, to oil, uh, you know, whether it's oil and oil products going through this ports. And by last last time I checked, it was something like six or seven million barrels of oil and, you know, oil products go through that port every single um, day. And so uh, they just want to make sure that that is not disrupted, the shipping is not disrupted. And the response of the United States to act as a world's police once again, and to deploy troops and the Navy in that area, in Yemen's own backyard, in Yemeni waters, and to say that they're defending capitalism essentially by calling it Operation Prosperity Guardian, that's just a clear out defense of capitalism. They're not even hiding it Um, when all they had to do was not support a genocide in Palestine, in Gaza, Um, and then to begin bombing Yemen and to call it Houthi targets as though airports are Houthi targets, you know, and not it'll belong to the Yemeni people. And so to escalate in that way rather than to work toward a diplomatic solution and to call for peace in that region, I think, just tells us what the intentions of the United States are and the violent response that we're seeing to this conflict.
1: Operation Prosperity Garden.
2: That's what they called it. Who comes up with these? The United States, apparently.
1: Tell me, you know, there's many countries that border... The Red Sea, and and even and, and even other bodies of water that gives you the route from the Atlantic to the Indian Ocean, only Yemen and the Houthis in Yemen are attacking U.S. ships and Israeli ships. For their claim of in solidarity, I, I don't know of in solidarity, but due to what is happening in Gaza, why why, why only Yemen? What, what's important to understand about this dynamic?
2: What's important to understand is that um, many of these countries are um, strong allies of the United States. They don't represent the will of their own people. Large, by and large, Arab populations are against the state of Israel and against the state of Israel certainly committing genocide in Gaza. Uh, we we see it on our phones every single day, and it's absolutely horrific. And the um, Arab countries in that region have not been able to mobilize in any way, shape, or form, you know, to put any kind of pressure to for Israel to stop its um, bombardment and its attack on civilians in Gaza. <clears throat> the Houthis have no relationship with the United States, and Israel have no intention to normalize relationships with Israel, as we've seen happen with many of these Arab countries. So. Um, The UAE, for example, just normalized relationships, their economic relationship with Israel. The Saudis were very close to a normalization deal with Israel. None of this has to do with the Palestinian people. They've done it, in fact, at the expense of Palestinian people, as though Saudi and Israel were ever at war. You know, they weren't. Um, But they're, you know, furthering their own economic interests through these normalization deals. And so they don't want to disrupt that. And they've allowed the U.S. and U.K. to use their airspaces to bomb Yemen in response. And so this, these are not people who could be seen as serious in their solidarity with Palestine and the Palestinians. Um, you've seen uh, clashes with Hezbollah and some um, clashes out of Iraq. But other than that, the Houthis represent the their They're not the rulers of Yemen, but they're essentially the de facto government in northern Yemen, whether they're recognized by the international community or not. They are the de facto government in Yemen um, and they pose the biggest threat here. But I think they stand. The spotlight is on them because of the silence of all of the regional um, players uh, right now. And it's a shameful silence. It doesn't have to be done this way. You know, like if the Saudis, for example, limited oil production just for a week. We could see what kind of impact that would happen that would have on uh israel's and certainly the u.s support for israel Um, instead they just make these statements that are um empty statements and they're just they just essentially through their silence are um supporting whatever is happening in palestine and so um why are they the only ones I, i don't know i would love to see it would have been it would have been important to see solidarity, material solidarity for Palestine, emerge from these other countries. But I know that the reality is that they don't represent the will of their people. These are dictators and and you know kings who have controlled, um, their region and who have they don't even have a constitution in Saudi Arabia, for example. These are absolute monarchies, and their relationship with Saudi, their relationship with the West, with the UK, with the US, with Israel is far more important than any kind of solidarity they would have for the Palestinian people.
1: Is there a historic relationship between Yemen and Palestine?
2: There is. Um, So Yemen, like I said, like we've talked about today, you know, it's been divided North and South. We had a monarchy in the North at some point, the communists in the South and a Republic of Yemen. And yet through all of these various um, government forms, we've had, Moral and material support for Palestinians and the Palestinian cause. So one example is when the when Yemen, northern Yemen, when it was still a monarchy, um, they joined the UN. They were in 1947. They were among five countries that walked out of the UN meeting when they voted to partition Palestine. Um, when in the 60s there was a war between Egypt and Israel the communists in the North and south Yemen closed Bab Mandab in solidarity with Palestine. Um, in the 1980s and 90s, during the Lebanese civil war and other events in that region, when the Palestinian leadership was kicked out of uh, Lebanon, they were welcomed with open arms by Ali Abdullah Saleh. The- president and so no matter what system we've had in power in government in yemen there's always been material and moral support to the palestinian people even growing up in yemen i had palestinian neighbors who you know they were their parents were teachers and they could work and live in yemen without any kind of restrictions that palestinians face in other countries you know no refugee camps or anything like that um there was a deep more solidarity with the Palestinian people throughout the decades, and I think part of that is because you know we mentioned Yemen as the homeland of Arabs, and so there's a sense of Arab na- nationalism and pan Arabism there. Um, but also, you know, we are a colonized people. We know what that looks like. We know the consequences of that, and we we know oppression when we see it because we've experienced it. And so there's this um, long running so- solidarity with the Yemeni people that you're seeing now manifest through Houthi leadership and the vast support by the yemeni people for these actions you've seen i don't don't know if your viewers have or your listeners have seen the masses in yemen who've come out in support of these um actions in the red sea and in defiance of the us uk bombings against them um we're talking millions of people being mobilized in the streets these people are not forced to be there they are showing their genuine support for the
1: palestinians in the arab world does yemen hold a special place to people for it the significance I mean maybe even what's happening right now, especially on the street but I but even historically speaking for its significance and in, in early Arab history
2: I would say that um we've kind of been sidelined by many in the Arab world as uh, and looked down upon uh frankly as being uh you know quote unquote the poorest middle country in the Middle East as though we weren't exploited and you know Uh, made impoverished by the various um, events that happened. But there's this, uh, and even if we were, like, so what, you know? Um, But I think they've been dismissed for quite a while. When the Saudis began bombing in Yemen in 2015, there was very little support for the Yemeni population. Since 2015 to 2023, there has not been like this, you know, mobilization for our cause. You don't see these protests in the Arab world in solidarity of Yemen. Um, it felt like we were just yelling into the void for all of these years trying to get people to pay attention to what's happening in Yemen and to stop their own governments from bombing us. There was not It wasn't a, a call for help. It was a call for ending hostilities, ending these, whether it was the U.S.'s influence in bombing in Yemen or the U.K. support for it or the Saudi or UAE. But we didn't have that mass mobilization Um on the streets or politically or otherwise in support of Yemenis um, and so we felt and many Yemenis have felt absolutely ignored by the rest of the world and by our Arab neighbors who ganged up on us essentially um, when we posed no threat to their security whatsoever um, but I think what's happening now is that they're seeing, all of a sudden we're seeing this attention on uh, on Sadullah and their actions in Yemen and Many in the Arab world are are understand this to be uh, a legitimate response to genocide. So the Houthis are saying that they are enacting their duties under the Genocide Convention, Article 1, prevention of genocide, the state's duties to prevent genocide. And many people are seeing this as a righteous form of resistance to what's happening in Palestine. Um, and... There's a lot more attention to the Yemen cause now than we've seen in the last several years. Um, I don't know how sustained this will be, but in this moment, there's a perceptible shift in how Yemenis are being seen by their neighbors, who for the longest time either accepted that they were just going to be bombed or just, you know, didn't really care that much. Or if they did, there wasn't any sustained mobilization uh, in solidarity with Yemenis.
1: So they're, they are citing the Geneva Convention for the justification of these attacks in yes. the Red Sea. And that, that reminds me, in the 1990s, when the Houthis are formed, they, they were an anti-corruption. It was an anti-corruption movement, wasn't it? I mean, I think it's easy for us, especially if we don't know a lot about it, myself included, to think of this as a theocratic kind of a group, and, and maybe there's some elements of that. But, but it's also a very sort of legal-minded anti-corruption movement group at least in its origins
2: it was anti-corruption anti-imperialist anti-interventionist group Um, and those were very clearly what they were calling for from the beginning and it's what made so many people in Yemen um, join their cause you know they're no longer just the Houthis or Ansarullah um, because Yemenis regardless of their sectarian affiliation whether they're or regional affiliation um, you know are joining, have joined the front lines, and have joined in many ways the cause of the Ansarullah, because these are things that affected all of us in Yemen, just most people weren't able to say anything about it. Now, of course, along the years, they've been accused of human rights violations, and I do think that every violation of human rights needs to be investigated thoroughly by outside neutral parties. Um, and I'm not saying that the Houthis have acted you know, in a way that Um, gained support from every Yemeni. That's not the case. But I think if there were elections in Yemen today, I think they would win hands down um, because of the grievances that they have and the the way that they've been seen as defending Yemen over the last several years in defiance of Saudi Arabia and the UAE and now directly in defiance of the United States and the United Kingdom. Um, They're seen as people who are in Yemen, defending Yemen against foreign intervention, foreign aggression, and have called against corruption and are um you know their cause is rooted in in those
1: grievances. Shireen Al-Adimi has been our guest. She has joined us for a conversation about the history of Yemen and who are the Houthis. Shireen Al-Adimi is a non-resident fellow at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft and assistant professor of language and literacy at Michigan State University's College of Education. Shereen al I I thank you very much for taking this time. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much, Mitch. That does it for Letters on Politics. The show is produced by Deanna Martinez. Kirsten Thomas is our engineer. If you'd like to hear this or past shows, you could do so by going online and finding our archives at kpfa.org. I'm Mitch Chodrich, and I thank you for listening. Support for WMNF come from listeners like you and USF College of Public Health. Committed to creating a world where health is accessible to all, communities thrive, and well-being is a priority. More at publichealth.usf.edu.
0: And coming up in about six minutes, Wavemakers with Janet and Tom Sherberger. Their guest today is Nikki Gaskin-Capehart, the president and CEO of the Pinellas County Urban League. That's the following NPR news. This is WMNF Tampa, WMNF.org.